I remember being so excited to hear our church band perform the song Beautiful Day by U2 at the beginning of our church service. They rehearsed midweek to prepare thoroughly. Nailing the song was important. The lighting was programmed. The haze machines filled to the brim. The sound was mixed to make an impact. That Sunday morning, I arrived at the church bright and early, brimming with anticipation for that opening song. It was going to be epic. And it was. Our attendees erupted with singing and applause. What a way to begin a service. That was 15 years ago. This article continues. That model, leveraging culture to connect with our community, worked beautifully at the time. Worked as in past tense. I fear it doesn't work any longer. For one, high-quality music is available at your fingertips. I can hear or watch YouTube perform every version of Beautiful Day on any platform anytime I want. I can see cover bands perform the song. I can watch other famous bands perform the song, and I don't even have to leave my phone. I didn't write that, but I could have. I was neck deep in that style of ministry for a few years at that same time, 15 years ago, and it was exhausting. It was unsustainable, and it wasn't helpful to anyone, spiritually or otherwise. People don't believe me when I tell them this, but I was good at putting video clips in sermons. I could make a great PowerPoint. More time, I, I spent hours putting together PowerPoints for my sermons, my teachings. Certainly more time than I did in studying. <laughs> Let's not talk about prayer. But times have changed. And that article goes on to explain that for churches to continue to attract people these days, they must be countercultural. So drop that stuff and focus on these areas. So here's how the article continues Four areas of help for church leaders here in the mid 20s. Welcome. If you do a welcome at the beginning of your service, welcome guests and let them know that you hope their time will be restful and refreshing. These words are essential to creating mental space. Life is not relaxing and restorative by default. We only experience that by intentional design. It's important to tell people what we hope for them. Worship. I suspect you sing at your church. Music elicits unique emotions and needs to be a part of, of a comprehensive church experience. Rather than singing a few performance songs, perhaps slow down the pace. Extend a bridge or two. Recite a specific line in the upcoming song and ask your congregation to consider what it means to them. The author says, I believe worship through music should be more reflective than regurgitated. Giving. If you take time in your service to prioritize generosity, 
Find a way to focus on the stories created by giving. People who give love to know what their generosity is building through God's grace. Ask people to, uh, to reflect on how God might be using them or could be using them to change the lives of others and let them consider. The sermon. Here's where we can accomplish a lot. For too long, preaching has been a monologue. People don't want to attend a monologue, obviously. They can stay home and listen to that while they cut the grass or commute to work. Turn your sermon into a reflective connection. Ask questions of your audience and solicit answers. Have people talk to each other about a topic or a concept as part of the message. Give your congregation space to ponder ideas. Make time for God's truth to land in their head and heart. Provide them with questions that prompt reflection or conversation. No. <laughs> Did you hear in that, in that article that advice to church leaders that worship is all about the people? In fact, worship in that article was defined solely as the singing part of the service. But singing is but a part of what happens when the saints assemble to worship our holy God. See, worship is not about creating a, a relaxing mental space for reflective connection. I don't even know what that is. Worship in the, in the rightful sense is, is, a, is a rightful response of sinful yet redeemed people when confronted by the holy God. John Piper said that, that worship, he said, true worship is a valuing or treasuring of God above all things. And J. Vernon McGee, he once said, the church is called a place of worship. Actually, it is the house of worship, but worship is not really done there. It is the place from which we take off. Worship is done up yonder. So the question that we must wrestle with is this, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? How must we, as those who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, how must we approach a God in worship, our God in worship? And remember, this is the, this is the same God of whom Paul wrote to Timothy, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. How should we approach that God? Leviticus chapter 1 begins to answer this question. Begins. Let's read this chapter together. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. 
Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat and the wood that is on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasant, pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish. He shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. And he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat. And the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on, on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. The priest shall offer it on the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar in the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar and the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now let's pray because we need God's help this morning. Father, it is our prayer that you would um, give us what we need today. Help us to have ears to hear, to understand these things. That we might behold the wonderful things about your word the marvelous things that you have done, that we might behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we began our study through this book of Leviticus last week, we began with, with a, uh, an overview of the entire book. And I said that this book as a whole answers that question that we find specifically in Psalm 24, verse 3, although we see it in other places in the Psalms and throughout the Scriptures. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy place? Now that psalmist in Psalm 24 answers that question in the very next verse by saying this, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Now put yourself back at Mount Sinai. At the foot of the mountain with the ancient Israelites. Because what they know is that none of them may ascend the hill of the Lord. Except the one who act, uh, would act as a mediator between God and his people, Moses. But if you know anything about Moses, you know that, that he doesn't have clean hands, as Psalm 24 says. In fact, he had killed an Egyptian back in the day, and then he went on the lamb for years. And so it's clear that, that Moses is only allowed to approach God because the Lord is gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love. And so as we saw last week, it is, it is God's law, including this book, 
that gives the Israelites the answer to the question. Let me ask the question just a, a, a little bit differently, a little more specifically. How can an impure, sinful, mortal man find access into the presence of God, both now in this life and in the life to come? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? How can we as sinful people find access into God's tabernacle, into His temple? Well, the Bible progressively reveals the answer for us. See, following creation in Genesis, we can see throughout the Scripture the following pattern. After creation, man sinned. Then came immediate separation. But then we see grace and redemption. Sin, separation, grace, and redemption. And Leviticus serves as as a stop along the way in that process. So the law of God is a a marker. It It is a gracious legal answer to our burning question. How can we who have fallen short of the glory of God approach Him in worship? And a significant part of God's revelation in answering this question unfolds for us in the ritual of the burnt offering that we just read about in chapter 1. Now, I'm going to get into this just a little bit more in a minute, but these are called burnt offerings because everything goes up in smoke. In in the Old Testament, this was the most frequently offered of the offerings, and it was also one of the most important. See, this this was the only sacrifice that completely belonged to God. No portion of the meat was eaten by by either the priests or the the, the people. Rather, the entire animal was consumed by fire on the altar. And the reason for this is that it was to display a complete surrender to God and also a complete acceptance by God of the one bringing the offering. Now, if your Bible is open there, Leviticus chapter 1, you're going to see on the, on the previous page, right at the very end of the book of Exodus, um, you'll see the, the record that the tabernacle, the portable temple, we could say, has been completed. Let me just read the last paragraph of the book of Exodus, beginning in verse, so it's chapter 40, verse 34. It says this, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all of their journeys, whether, uh, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out for, until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys." So this cloud that had been at the top of Mount Sinai, we mentioned this last week, um, represented the, the presence of God with His people. It now, here at the end of the book of Exodus, descended into the tabernacle, into this tent of meeting. 
Now look at the first two verses of Leviticus chapter 1. It says this, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. And so the people of Israel, as we're considering the the setting here, we're still at uh, the foot of Mount Sinai. They've now entered into covenant with the Lord, with Yahweh, the King of heaven. And this king has now descended into their midst to take up residence in what we might call his, his palace, his tabernacle. And as this book opens, he again summons Moses, this time not to the top of the mountain, but to the tabernacle, to the house of the Lord, where he gives to Moses as his covenant mediator, as his go-between between between, uh, God and the people, he gives them his covenant laws. So the uh, covenant-giving God, the covenant-keeping God, gives the covenant mediator covenant laws for his covenant people. Twice in the book of Exodus, we are told that Yahweh's glory descended onto Mount Sinai. Each time, he summons Moses and he gives him laws for the people to follow, the Israelites. The same thing is happening here. Now here's where I want you to take note. The first several chapters of the book of Leviticus are laws of offerings. And they're addressed specifically, I want you to see this, they are addressed specifically to the people of Israel. You could see it there in verse 2. When any one of you brings an offering, he says, speak to the people of Israel. These are for the people. It's not until chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, that the law of the Lord specifically turns to the priests. Now, the priests certainly had a role even in these first several chapters. You probably picked it up as we read this. But the focus is on the people themselves. Now, the reason for the burnt offering, the reason that it is first here at the beginning of the book is because this is, this is the foremost offering of the sanctuary. The next book, the book of Numbers, um, chapter 28 tells us that the burnt offerings were to be given daily, actually morning and evening, as well as at scheduled feasts. This was the, this was the basic offering given when an Israelite wanted to draw near to God in worship. Just consider the immensity of what they went through. As a result, this offering emphasizes really the essential aspects of the the sacrificial ritual. So the right animal would be carefully selected. The worshiper's hand is placed on the animal's head. The blood is shed and the animal is completely consumed by the fire. To those of us uh, who didn't grow up butchering our own animals, which I know many of you have experience with, I butchered a chicken once, I don't ever want to have to do that again. This seems kind of unpleasant, doesn't it? 
It even seems really primitive, especially in the context of worship. But these elements of sacrifice are essential for us to understand God's plan of redemption. These are shadows of the reality of Christ. This helps us to understand John, John the Baptist's famous statement, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, this ritual of the burnt offering, it reveals to us that no one may approach the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty at any time without a substitutionary sacrifice to make an atonement for sin. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. In in this chapter, it is graphically represented By the blood, life is. Life is graphically represented by the blood, which must be shed, must be given for any worshiper to draw near to God. This is one of the reasons why the preacher of Hebrews will say in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Why? Because God had said at the beginning, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Worshippers, those who will worship God, have to remember that the only reason they are allowed into His sanctuary for any reason is because they have been sanctified. They have been made holy by the substitutionary atonement of the blood sacrifice. Now, I'll let you in on a little secret. I actually like the song Beautiful Day by you 2 I think it's a good little, little ditty. But do you see why we're not singing it here? Just from this? Do you see why it's not appropriate to sing in a worship service? You see why we're we're not putting up countdown timers, making this a big production? It's It's not because I can't picture Lee and Drew leading in that song. I can't, but it's not because I can't. This isn't about stylistic differences. It's because you and I need to hear when we come together, when when the saints assemble to worship a holy, holy, holy God, we need to hear something like this, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, I I hold some pretty tight convictions regarding worship here at RBC. And I believe that during the course of this study, as we work our way through the book of Leviticus, we're going to be tweaking our our, our liturgy, which just is our order of worship. We're going to be tweaking it a little bit to better conform to the patterns of worship that we see in Scripture. So in the coming months, you might see a few adjustments to what we normally do here on Sundays. Maybe we should start with a confession of sin and an assurance of pardon. Right now we do it kind of in the middle. 
Maybe we should start with the doxology. Well, let's pick up here. Within this instruction of burnt offerings that we're talking about here in chapter 1, there are three divisions, and I'm, I'm sure you probably picked up on them when we read this. Uh, the law divides these with a, with a lot of repetition between the herd, the flock, and the birds. And there are three essential um, elements of, of the meaning of this for us even today. We could even put it this way. There are three applications for worship. First is this. True worshipers must be sanctified. That's what we find in the commands of verses 3, 11, and 14. They're repetitive. Well, here's the thing. From the beginning, God had said that if man disobeyed, if mankind disobeyed, he said, you shall surely die. Even so, right here, we can see the good news that God has graciously made a way for His people to come into His presence, provided that they obey His law, provided that they offer a substitutionary, a substitute sacrifice on His altar. And He Himself set this pattern for us. Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, there's this little comment, I, I might have mentioned this last week, Genesis 3.21 says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. God sacrificed an animal to cover the shame of Adam and Eve. Incidentally, this is also one of the reasons why God would have no regard for Cain's offering of first fruits from his garden. Because the sacrifice of fruits and vegetables are insufficient for making a heart pure. And Cain did not have a pure heart, as evidenced by his subsequent murder of Abel, right? And so this substitutionary sacrifice, it can't be just any offering. There's actually three requirements here. To begin with, the sacrifice must be completely surrendered to God. Completely surrendered to God. Now, in this chapter, one thing that you might have noticed is that there's actually three different terms used for this specific element of worship. So there's the term offering itself, which is used a few times in verses 2 and 3. We see it again in verse 14. That word means to, to draw near. That's what it means. The word offering there means to draw near. In fact, it's used for something that has, been, that has been given or dedicated to God. That's what an offering is. Something that has been given, drawn near in dedication to God. The second term is, is generally translated as burnt offering. That's actually one word, and it means to go up, as in to go up in smoke. And then the third term that's used, it's used in verse 9, verse 13, and verse 17. It's translated in the, in the English Standard Version that I use, the ESV. It's, it's translated as food offering, but that's not a great translation of that. Um, it's more like a, an offering by fire, which is, I think, what maybe some of the older translations say. Today, we might say something like a, a grilled offering, um, 
a flame-broiled offering. It, and this gives it its, its pleasing aroma, right? Like a grilled meat. However, unlike when we grill some delicious meat, these offerings were to be completely consumed by the fire. So the animal would be skinned, quartered, the waste would be washed off. It says it washed off the entrails and the hind legs. The waste would be washed off the animal. And then it says at the end of each section, the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, or a grilled offering, an offering by fire with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But notice at the beginning of this process, verse 3 says, He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He, the worshiper, not the priest, shall bring uh, this offering to to the entrance before he's allowed in, before coming into worship, so that he might find divine favor, grace from God. And then each section ends with the good news. This is the way to find acceptance with God. Do this and you shall live and enter into his courts with thanksgiving. Enter into his gates with praise. The sacrifice must be completely consumed. It is to be completely surrendered to God. The second requirement or stipulation here is that the sacrifice, not only is it completely given over to God, but it, but it may be brought by anyone. Anyone. This is the reason for the three different animals here. See, which offering is brought depends really on the socioeconomic standing of the worshiper. Honestly, it's not likely that many of them can afford to bring a calf, especially not twice a day, every day, right? Your herd would shrink rapidly. It's not likely that many of them were able to do that, but to whom much is given, much is required. Sheep and goats would have been more common, but you can imagine that the doves and the pigeons would be plentiful. In fact, they could even be caught in some instances at least. The point is that no one is barred from worship on the basis of their income or their ability. And incidentally, you you may have noticed in that last section about the birds that it's the priest that's doing the work. With the animals, with the herd and the flock, with the the calves and and the sheep or goats, the person bringing the offering understood there is the man bringing the offering does the work, but in that last section, it's, it's the priest. Among other things, this is the grace of God toward widows, toward the orphans, toward the crippled. No one is left out. This is God's grace. The third requirement or third kind of stipulation is that the sacrifice must be perfect, must be without blemish. See, the sacrifice must be perfect because it was being offered up in the place of a blemished worshiper. Consider for us these days, consider Colossians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. 
And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him without blemish, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all, he- uh, in all creation under heaven. Those who are in Christ have been made holy, have been sanctified by him, by Jesus Christ. And so we are now uh, able in worship, we are called in worship to draw near with full assurance of faith and hearts sprinkled clean by the blood of the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. The second application for us is that this sacrifice is a sacrifice of body and blood. It's a sacrifice of body and blood. It's a substitute. And and it's personal. The the ritual begins when when the worshiper places his hand, it specifically says, on the head of the animal. Actually, it The image is that he's pressing down on the head of the animal. It's likely that genuine worshipers said a prayer at this point. The image here is not simply that he's holding the animal in place. It's more along the lines of something that we sometimes call in church circles the laying on of hands. This later becomes a a ritual of dedication to the Lord. So, for example, in Acts chapter 13, verses 2 and 3, we see an example from the New Testament of this, this laying on of hands. So Acts, 2, Acts 13, 2 says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Similarly, Paul urged Timothy, he says, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that you may, all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. I wanted to read that whole passage, that whole paragraph, because it really encapsulates uh, the, uh, the dedication to the Lord which Timothy received through that ritual of the, of the laying on of hands. Timothy was was completely and wholly dedicated to the Lord. And in this sacrifice here in the book of Leviticus, this animal is being dedicated wholly and completely to the Lord. And he's done so, it is done so by the one doing or bringing the offering. This is a close and, and he'd almost say intimate act. The one who raises the animal. And takes care of it, oversaw its birth, maybe had to bottle feed for a while if they did such a thing. 
He can feel the animal's head in his hand. And with one hand pressing on the animal's head, with the other hand he slits its throat. This animal sacrifice would die at the hand of the worshiper. This is personal. And notice the body and the blood. Everything is put on the altar. Now, clearly in here, the priests are assisting in this. They would take the blood. They would take the body to the altar. They were the go-betweens. They were to be the, the mediators, thus assuring that this sacrifice would be done properly, it would be done completely, and that the wrath of God towards sin would then be diverted from the sinner, and so that worshiper is now able to enter freely into God's presence. The whole purpose of this is stated right in verse 4, to make an atonement for him. But I want you to see three, three limitations in this. First, this is only effective for the one bringing the offering. It wasn't for the nation. It wasn't even for the tribe. In fact, it's likely that there would be a, there would be a long line of people behind this guy holding their own sheep, carrying their own doves, leading their own calves, waiting for their turn to do exactly what he just did. Second, this, this offering, this sacrifice, it does, not, it does not actually, if you read through this chapter, it doesn't emphasize the, the removal of the person's sin or his guilt or change their nature. There's no promise here of a new heart, which we get much later in the Old Testament. They still need that new heart because theirs is now uh, not, not completely pure. This only makes a, a temporary fellowship with Yahweh possible. That brings us to the third, the third limitation of this system. Tomorrow, you're getting up and doing this all again. Do you know what this means for us? Do you know what this means for us living in 2023? Hebrews chapter 7, verses 22 to 27 tells us plainly, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, catch this, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. Can you, can you taste the good news there? Can you smell the good news in this? This pleasing aroma to the Lord? It's Christ. This is really the third application of worship for us. It is to be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. 
We sometimes pray that when we gather together, Lord, that our worship would rise to you as a pleasing aroma. That's where we get this. A pleasant aroma. This is the result of, of approaching God in worship that, in the way that he requires every time. At the end of each section of this, it repeats, it is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And just to be very clear, this does not mean that God loves a good barbecue, but that the obedience of the worshiper pleases him. The obedience of the worshiper pleases him. Therefore, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And so... Because he was the fragrant offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Because Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, when we gather together, we can boldly approach the throne of grace and be reminded, first and foremost, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have to stand outside the doors and build fires as you bring your pigeons in. Praise God for that. Because he, Christ, loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And so we come to the table this morning. We come and we eat and we drink with thankful hearts because of Christ's sacrifice for us. And this is just, this is the first of many offerings, by the way. The first of many sacrifices. But it all points to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do not presume to come into your presence because of anything in us but we come because of Christ. And so we rejoice. We, re we rejoice that Christ, um, that his sacrifice was a pleasing aroma to you. That, God, that you, Father, God, for your own glory, sent your only begotten Son, that he should suffer and die to take away through his shed blood our sin for all who will call on him by faith. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Father, we rejoice in these things. We, we come to the table, Lord, rejoicing, proclaiming the death of Christ until he returns. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.